Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders at the University of Bristol. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today. In this episode, Gabriel Beth and I spoke with Nav Sawney, the founder and CEO of the Washing Machine Project and elected trustee of Engineers Without Borders. The Washing Machine Project aims to limit the burden of hand-washing clothes for people all over the world through creating a single, standalone, off-grid washing solution. In this episode, Nav speaks of the inspiration behind his project, the prototype development process, and the importance of globally responsible engineering. As always, we started by asking Nav to introduce himself and describe how he got where he is today. My name is Nav. It means new in Punjabi. And um, I think first and foremost, I've, I've always been a very curious person. I was a very curious child. I um, used to be obsessed with planes. My dad was an aerospace engineer and he'd take me to air shows, uh, Farnborough Air Show, which is fascinating as a five-year-old seeing these big jumbo jets flying in the sky and how they got up there. And that used to really trigger my curiosity. And I'd come back home and I'd take the toolbox out of the cupboard and I would break everything. And that used to really make my mum angry. Nothing worked in the house and everything new that came into the house I used to break all the time with a screwdriver. So that was my growing up. I have two older sisters. My my father unfortunately passed away when I was a young boy, seven years old. And um, we lived in a very small flat in London. I grew up with my, my sisters and my mum and I really knew the importance of, of, of women in the household. Uh, that coupled with my my family history of the migration to this country. My mum came to this country with five pounds in her pocket. She used to write for the Financial Times of India, but got married to, to my dad, who was an aerospace engineer, and, and they moved to the UK together. My mum worked in her first role as a secretary. You know? No disrespect to secretaries. But you know this really formed my lived experiences when I was a kid. Um, so I knew that I was a part of a small community a tight-knit community. My mum and my sisters protected me all the time. A very curious child. Uh, I was a part of the Scouts when I was growing up. Uh, so I used to travel a lot. My dad, in the partition between India and Pakistan, became a refugee. His, his father, my grandfather, had a bullet fly over his head and they had to flee overnight with 12 children, with only the clothes on their back, across the border to flee conflict. So I knew what it's like for a family to be a refugee, a refugee family. So all of these lived experiences, you know, uh, it was a natural transition to study engineering uh, at university where I studied aerospace engineering. Um, I was really interested in humanitarianism. So I used to travel and do lots of trips uh, doing humanitarian work uh, abroad. I actually failed my first year of university. I won't get into the, the story of why and how, but I really surrounded myself with not very good people uh, at the time. I came back the year after, retook, and then I surrounded myself with like-minded people. You know, uh, It was a very international audience. We had people from Nigeria, Iraq, Syria, France. We nicknamed ourselves the United Nations as a, as a friendship group, and, and we went year on year studying hard, you know, We'd study 12, 13 hours a day uh, at university, in the library, camp out. 
and, and things like that. Um, and it was a real collaborative feel. And in my fourth year, I graduated top of my class and I got a first. So this kind of like adversity and overcoming adversity has always been there throughout my life. And then graduating from Queen Mary, I landed the Dyson graduate program, which was a dream come true. I applied for 110 jobs and I probably got 10 interviews and two job offers. And one of them was Dyson. So I can really empathize with, with the graduates that are coming out right now of university thinking like, what the hell's happening? And I don't know what to do. Even I didn't know what to do at that time. But I, I joined Dyson and it was a fascinating experience. I used to have meetings with James Dyson talking about design engineering and making these fantastic products. And I used to come home so excited about making vacuum cleaners. Like, <laughs> I don't know what what happened and why, but, you know, it was, it was really fascinating. It's really, and a young team. The average age of Dyson at the time was like 25, I think. So it was a, it was a real university feel. That was great. I realized about three years in that every bit of good engineering that I'm doing right now is, is making a vacuum cleaner for a rich person that doesn't really need it. So I had to make the really strong decision to quit. So I quit my job at Dyson. After three years, I went to go volunteer for Engineers Without Borders UK on the International Placement Programme. And you can imagine from a South Asian family, Indian, quite traditional, going to my mum and saying, I'm going to quit my well-paid job to work for free in India for poor people. She didn't take that very well, but she knew I was really unhappy um, at the time. And this opportunity with Engineers Without Waters UK on the placement program came up. You know, there was 500 applicants and only three people got through. So it was a blessing, you know, and I, I moved to South India where I was making clean and efficient cook stoves. I was there for a year. I lived in a village called Kulapalayam. And my next neighbor was a lady called Divya. And Divya became a very good friend of mine, my best friend. She was the only lady, lady on the street that spoke English. She got married at the age of 16. She wanted to work, but didn't. Had two kids. Spoke perfect English. And that's how me and her communicated. Water was switched on twice a day, 6am and 6pm. I was asleep at 6am and I was at work at 6pm. So she would switch on the, the water for me. And I'd always run out of water, so I'd have to go to a house with bucket in hand. Can I have some water, please? And Divya and I caught up about everyday activities. And I saw Divya's plight, you know, very simple things like cooking and cleaning. And she'd have to travel far distances to get wood. And she'd have to wait and wait to get water. And Sugama, her seven-year-old son, had to study un underneath darkness for his exam the next day. And these kinds of problems I really didn't, I wasn't aware of in the, in the UK, in my warm house. And people like Divya are crying out for innovations like this, you know, light, washing machines, cook stoves. And so it was, it was this moment where I saw Divya for what seemed like a few hours of hand washing clothes. Did I say to her, you know, maybe I, I can fix this for you as an engineer. Maybe I can create a manual washing machine. And so the idea was born 
out of that conversation. Her eyes lit up, and that was in 2017. I came back home to the UK with that promise in mind. I printed that picture on my bank card to remind me every day of that promise. And, uh, you know, we've never looked back since. I started the washing machine project. I took up a master's in humanitarianism, conflict and development at Bath University. And I worked at Jaguar Land Rover as well to, to make some money. And, and that was really the start of the washing machine project. Since then, we've partnered up with Oxfam and the United Nations. We've had over 100 volunteers. We've made 50 washing machines already and are yet to announce massive partnerships in 2021. And the rest is really history you know we've we've been featured on some of the largest news outlets around the world but that promise is still in mind you know and the people that really matter and the reason why i'm here is because i think really people need to understand that you know as as young engineers and young graduates or people that are still studying engineering you know there's this obsession to just jump at the first graduate program that you get to you know or you know, there's an obsession to go to the Airbus or, or Boeing or Rolls-Royce or Dyson. And there's like, I have to get the best program imaginable. But I'm here to say that people like Divya need support. They need young, bright minds to come up with solutions and, a, and an ethical mindset to come up with some of the most pressing problems in the world today. So that's a small introduction to to me. It's interesting you talk about that pressure to get the, the best internships. I definitely feel that. Um, and I've, I've heard you talk a lot before about having the importance of having a global mindset, um, and especially in the current world that we live in. So I wanted to know uh, why globally uh, responsible engineering is so important to you and, and should be so important to all of us. Yeah, I think it's very, very important. I think a very good example of that is on my master's programme, I have some of the most senior people in charity on my master's program, but no engineers. So these are senior decision makers in humanitarian settings, in unfolding conflict zones or um, evolving natural disasters that don't have any idea about engineering and the influence of engineering, whether it's through uh, shelter, water and sanitation, or communication. I'll give you a couple of examples. The UNHCR in Jordan, in Azraq camp, they have 50,000 refugees living there. And it reaches 50 degrees in the summer. The shelter that they have right now, inside the shelter, it reaches 46 degrees. They don't have any air conditioning. They don't have any fans. The pain threshold to touch something is at 40 degrees. So it's 46 degrees without any cooking or any gas on or anything like that. In, in a shelter for 50,000 refugees right now in Jordan. Why isn't an engineer solving some of that problems? That's a really interesting question because what, why aren't engineers there? It's, and I think probably it's, it's something to do with the, the mindset where it's, it's all so far away. But from your experience, how much of a difference just to the mindset does it have if there's like an engineer on the decision-making compared to just an engineer being a consultant? Yeah, I think the engineer has such influence to the decision-making, to any project. A lot of the technical skills and expertise are done by engineers, and they should be at the heart of everything. They should be a part of that experience. 
And Beth, you mentioned something which is, it seems so far away. That's why all the volunteers on the washing machine project, I recommend them to to hand wash clothes to understand the problem before they even come up with the solutions. And I think, you know, people, especially young people, including me, feel like you have to get on a plane to help someone. But that's not true, you know. Look at some of the problems that are happening right now in the country that we live in, in the UK. You know, there's very limited access to, to food for, for people who who are on food stamps and, and things like that. You know, technology, everyone has to communicate online now. My friend who runs this organisation called Ready Tech Go provides technical solutions for, for, for people who, who don't have mobile phones, let alone laptops and some of the fancy gear that we're using. We don't have to get on a plane to help people, you know, creating an app for a refugee to access pro bono law support to help with their refugee asylum application can be done remotely. Those kinds of the solutions that I, I'm, I'm getting at. And that, that takes a globally responsible mindset. And there's no criticism on people who are working for these companies that I've just mentioned. If you are working for these companies, great, fantastic, that's good for you. But what are you doing to keep your company held to account as some of the ethical decisions that they're making? If you wake up every day and you have to make missiles for defense, in inverted commas, commas what ethical engineering are you providing for that company? And that's what being uh, globally responsible and having that mindset is to me. That's a really interesting point about um, ethics, particularly in engineering. I find a lot of the day that our engineering courses at university don't particularly have any talk on ethics for, you know, such powerful jobs that have the ability to help lives or, well, take lives, to be honest. Um, Do you think that there needs to be renewed focus on engineering ethics within engineering education? Thanks for your question, Gabriel. And this is a, a an evolving thing, right? So we have uh, AI controlling large parts of our organisation's everyday lives. I mean, just today, I don't know if you guys suffered from it, but Google went down for half an hour and it made headline news. No one was allowed to access the their emails or their, their documents and things like that, and YouTubers down, etc. And it caused an uproar. It's just so ingrained in our lives now these large companies that ethics is so important you know um a good example when i get this question is i like to bring up is you know autonomous vehicles uh, let me give you a scenario you're driving in a autonomous vehicle you have a car to the left of you who's got a baby in it you have a school bus to the right of you and you have an old lady crossing the road ahead of you that's come out all of a sudden and you have someone behind you which way do you go which way do you stop do you speed up do you slow down who makes those decisions about which life matters more that is where ethics comes comes into to to play and that's only only being understood right now it's such a new thing mm, to play devil's advocate on the um, on the car thing uh, i think a lot of the proponents of uh, driverless vehicles say that the average human driver is less safe than a autonomous driver and so replacing um, humans although not perfect is a better solution and leads to well 
more lives being saved. But obviously it comes to the point where um, people have to choose, which is not a decision that can be taken lightly. Yeah, and, and, and that unfolding transition of some cars being autonomous and some cars not. And I, yeah, I think a majority of the cars by 2050 will be autonomous, but it's that, that 30 years I'm talking about and, um, you know, how the ethics of all of that evolves. So I suppose the important thing is to not only produce engineers who are going to go out and be a part of something that helps people who really need it, but also have enough training that they can make really good ethical decisions. And it's not just engineers that we need at the table, we need a collaborative effort, you know. I think quite often in the engineering community we feel like we're the only people that can solve some of the world's most pressing problems, but we're not, we're not. We're just a part of the, the solution and it takes a collaborative effort. It takes, you know, social scientists, anthropologists, field researchers and everyone in between. A big theme you've um, you've talked about a lot is... Uh community whether it be the the people around you or the people that you try to help and you know the people who need to be involved in a project to bring it forward and how would you say that it's possible to you know foster these like community attitudes uh, amongst engineers and you know the wider world i think this is uh, becoming more pertinent over the night over the last year um we're advised not to use the term like-mindedness, right? Because it only attracts the same bunch of people. And to be free-flowing and free-thinking, you need new ideas and new things. And people who are all the same breathe the same thoughts, almost. And so you need people around you that are working towards the same mission as you. And it's about having that shared, shared goal to achieve this by a certain date. And I think... Those are the things I'm most passionate about within engineering. So diversity is really important to me. So I've been on the diversity panel for Engineers Without Borders UK. Uh, it's something that's really important to me, if being a person of colour, being born and brought up around women. I, I want to see representation in engineering. And it's n- not good enough right now, frankly. It needs to do better. And it's not just about filling the pipe. You know, people say, oh, we just need to give them opportunity fine fill the pipe but what about when they get into the room is the room welcoming for them you know is it a welcoming environment for people from diverse backgrounds from the conversations i've had and my own lived experiences is not very welcoming and i think the engineering needs to have a really deep look at itself and and see why they can and how they can do better and that builds a sense of community because that's the most important thing where people feel equal and responsible because you question yourself like am I here to fill a quota or am I here because of my own expertise so you want people to feel welcome you want feel people to feel comfortable and that's how you drive community and that's that's how you're going to achieve some of these world's most pressing problems I think that I mean you've highlighted sir a whole range of really important points and you know especially the the focus on it's not enough to just provide opportunities but you have to do the the legwork after that as well i think none of us have the answers to it all but as a community of engineers we all just need to you know put in that extra bit of effort doesn't matter who it is you just gotta try and like 
reach out to everyone. Yeah, and it really was, the trigger was Black Lives Matter, but it's been going on for years. It's been going on for years. I'd love to hear about some of your experiences as women engineering, you know, and some of the comments that you've come across. Um, I did a gap year and I studied art. And um, whenever people say that, they're like, oh, okay, so you're an artist. You're like a creative engineer. And I'm like, no, I just like, I like maths. <laughs> or as soon as I say design engineering, even if I try and explain what design engineering actually is, people tend to just like focus on, oh, you're creative because it's kind of more feminine. But then some people, they'll actually listen and then they'll kind of learn. And Yeah. What about you, sir? Yeah, I was going to say, there's one time that really sticks out to me. It was after a... Um, an evening where we spoke to representatives from industry and I was speaking to someone afterwards and asking them about um, women in engineering and any prominent female engineers that they had in their company. And he had the brochure in front of me and he said... And he just could that he couldn't find a woman in the brochure, and then and then proceeded to mention um, someone who was um, a female engineer that he knew that was really good, and said, "Oh, but women are really good at engineering because they bring a more caring touch." They um, and he was going down this kind of spiral, and I just didn't know how to respond because it was trying to put me in a box that said that I would be this kind of engineer because of being a woman, which I just found quite difficult to deal with and I just I didn't really entertain the conversation much further because I thought well this isn't the kind of guy I want to work with I mean it doesn't matter whether it's to do with gender or race or sexuality you know there are people who are malicious and then there are people who are ignorant I've got all the time in the world people who are ignorant if they want to learn you know if someone's willing to sit down and have a conversation and I hope that you know, I hope that I am that person who's ignorant. Of course, everybody's ignorant, but willing to learn. But if people are just closed-minded, then there's nothing. You can't really continue the conversation. There's, it's not gonna. You're not gonna achieve anything. And I guess this is person that was like at the front of the organisation trying to advertise opportunities for you to join right and trying to be like oh yeah we love female engineers female engineers they bring in this touch that you know male engineers just don't have I was like are you you're trying to flatter me but in this saying that you know there's a difference there because of our gender one of the things I had for one of my to one of my female colleagues oh she's one of the lads uh, that was terrible it's really tragic and I think there's a lot of education as as Beth mentioned you know the, the the idea that if you're ignorant then you're willing to learn that's great I think there's a whole shift there's a whole cultural shift and and you know we transformed our lives over the last hundred years and I can only begin to imagine what, what it's going to be like over the next 50 years you know the 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 generation coming up the Gen Z's as we call them they're so frustrated of inheriting an earth a planet that has so many pressing problems but I think it's up to the the Gen Z's amongst us not to just you know this cancel culture is huge right I don't like this person so I'm going to cancel them off you know but it's much harder to have those conversations like we're doing right now and I think I think that's really important as well and I, I think you know to bring this back to engineering and I think you know engineers have such a crucial role to play in all of this it's it's good like talking you need to create a global mindset I suppose it's like on the day-to-day how do you let's say you're designing like a an engineering course theoretically how do you build that in 
quite often what happens like it's a bit like well-being units or whatever they just feel like patronizing and people don't pay attention how do you create a set like a sense of how important global engineering is without it people just switching off you keep talking about it and don't shut up about it (laughs) um no and i'll give you an example so my my design engineer for volunteering for the project great guy just graduated design engineer from university of aston amazing talent but he was coming up with these all, all these elaborate solutions and i'm like you need to get in the mind frame of someone that's going to be using this it's not you that's going to be using this product it's unfortunately women that are being disproportionately affected by this 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 problem of hand washing clothes you know making sure that we're globally responsible is by what what the washing machine project has done over the last two years we've gone to eight countries interviewed hundreds and hundreds of families to understand their lived experiences we've gone to refugee camps rural areas urban areas we've got full spectrum we understand the problem we listen to the solution of what really what's the need yeah with all of this you get an understanding of what needs to be done and you tell the story you keep telling the story and the importance of why why this is a solution that's needed around the world and i think it it should be the end user what are you trying to create for the end user that should be at the center of everything that you do divya should be at the center of everything that we should do at the washing machine project and so who are you trying to help and what are you trying to achieve and that's how you keep a globally responsible mindset for people listening um if you maybe like went over basically what the washing machine like how they work that's a really good question and uh, to begin with um we do ground field research to understand the need so for example in 2019 i and a colleague of mine flew to iraq to a refugee camp where we went to five refugee camps where we interviewed 79 yazidi families we tried to understand the need before we even started creating a solution it was a harrowing experience you heard about isis persecution abuse men and boys going missing fathers never returning home and everything in between and you understand and you compile all of this information you package it up in a report you then have a basis to enter that country and you know that there's a need you then go to the design you say right this family has an average size of 9 people for example and then you put a specification together it has to be a large drum capacity it has to be light it has to have this water consumption it has to limit back pain joint pain and irritation it has to promote positive posture it has to be very cheap this is the affordability of these people these are the requirements in terms of materials this is how we're going to manufacture it and 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 produce it and ship it you then design it you prototype 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 you then take it back out to the same people you interviewed right we've created a solution what do you think you learn from these people no i don't like this this handle is too big this is too heavy this is breaking too easily it's not cleaning my clothes this is better as a tv stand rather than a washing machine these are the real things that people have told us 
You know, I have one picture that was sent to us of someone using our base as a TV stand rather than a washing machine. Why is that? You come back to the drawing board, you iterate, you learn, you develop more and more again and again until you have a finished product. Wow. What would you say is a main misconception about uh, the people that use your product, whether that be refugees or people in the developing world? Such a good question, man. Such a good question. Fundamentally, privileged people like you and I think poor people are lost and they are desperate for help and they have nothing. These people had money. They had everything you could ever imagine. But just because of circumstance, they lost everything overnight. And the misconception, the biggest misconception is that, I'm going to use a bad term, poor people want poor quality goods. That's not true. They want the best of the best. And they have so much pride in their heart. They don't want to be seen with low quality goods. And I think that holier than thou attitude needs to just, you need to forget about that. Like, I'm better than you, and I'm here to serve you. You're not here to serve anyone. You're here to work collaboratively with people. You know, the history of humanitarian aid is built on colonialism. So how would you ever feel equal when you know that the person giving you aid is looking at you in a demeaning way? So I think that's the biggest misconception. How does EWB deal with those themes of colonialism and... I guess, equality between um, some of the richer countries and some countries that aren't as rich. And so I'm here with two hats on. So I'm the founder of the Washing Machine Project, this social enterprise that works on building manual washing machines that save time, water and effort. But I'm also the trustee and I sit on the board of Engineers Without Borders UK, which is fascinating. I was like you on a student society, worked my way through and now I sit on the board working with the CEO and and the chair and, and other trustees. And it's, I think Engineers Without Borders UK is such an amazing charity to create awareness, educate people, and give equal access to a globally responsible way of thinking when it comes to engineering. Engineers Without Borders UK's tagline is there is no planet B. I can't believe there's so many billions of pounds being spent right now on exploring Mars and the moon and things like that. It's just phenomenal to think that when there's a billion people living on one dollar a day that's crazy <laughs> so so engineers our borders uk adopt this amazing philosophy of donor economics which means you need to develop and thrive and create cool solutions but with it within your planetary boundaries but you need to bring along with you the two, three, four, five billion people that don't have the same solutions as you do in a sustainable way. So that's a really interesting challenge. And I think Engineers Borders UK is the forefront of highlighting these, these, these problems and being a part of some of the solutions as well. It's worrying to think how many more refugees um, will be uh, like as a result of climate change as well and how... It's overwhelming to think how we'll deal with that as well and just to know where the solution lies. Yeah, and displacement is increasing. I think it's at 71 million this year. I think it's up by 1% year on year from last year. So displacement is increasing. And as you're saying, Siren, is 
you know, we haven't even come to the the displacement due to natural disaster and global warming yet. That hasn't even come up yet. But, you know, I don't want to be all doom and gloom. No, I think we need massive policy changes as well as the engineering solutions. I think that's where the the difference will like come predominantly will be through carbon tax or who knows, but we need to think on that level as well as we need that collaboration between engineer engineers and policymakers. Yeah, and I so just to just to kind of finish the point I was making about doom and gloom, just look about a hundred years ago and look at how what a terrible state the world was in. I think we just came out of World War One going into World War Two, millions and millions of people dying unnecessarily due to plague and un- disease, various outbreaks. Rights, human rights, gay rights, women voting, capital punishment. Look at how much progress the world has made over the last 100 years. So that's an amazing feat of achievement. That doesn't mean we don't stop and rest until everyone has equal opportunities to everything that everyone on the planet does. So it's really easy to get uh, sad about everything, but we need to have a bit of perspective as well. For example, there are more girls in education now compared to 100 years ago. There are more people voting now than 100 years ago. There's more. There's less people in poverty than 100 years ago. More people that have access to electricity than 100 years ago. And all these very positive things. We shouldn't quit until it is for everyone, but we need to move forwards. And then, sorry, just to answer your question about policy... Yes, 100%. But the policymakers need to have an informed understanding of engineering and its impacts. And and that's why it takes people from all walks of life to be engineers, to sit with engineering. And I would love to see a policymaker that's an engineer as well. My best friend works for the Department for Transport, working with government right now. And he's a PhD graduate in combustion engineering from Cambridge University. So it's a really beautiful example of how policy can influence engineering and, and vice versa. And uh, some of the principles that Engineers Without Borders were founded on, the Millennium Development Goals, I think are a really great example of the progress that's been made even in the past 30 years towards you know, eradicating extreme hunger. Obviously, there's still a way to go and reducing child mortality and stuff like that. There is definitely light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to making the world a better place through engineering or however you want to phrase it. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you think so, Gabriel, because it's up to you guys to come up with even more. Just to kind of look into the future, where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? Where do you see your project in 10 years' time? So the, the washing machine project wants to distribute thousands of washing machines all over the world, wherever there's a need. But we're not going to stop at washing machines. We're going to create a whole range of appliances that are needed in the development context. So off-the-grid refrigeration is something that we're looking at right now, you know, lighting. I just finished my master's, I just said. I did uh, a study on uh, water sanitation and hygiene and in, in, in its influence on gender in the humanitarian setting. Yeah, One of the research that I found was if your latrine, a female latrine, is close to a male latrine, in a refugee camp, the closer you are, the more likely you are to get raped. Why is that? So men drill holes in female latrines, peep holes, 
and there is a direct correlation between the distance of, of a female and a male latrine and gender-based violence. Fundamentally, do the research yourself, there is. So I would love to understand some of these problems and come up with these solutions because no one, from our understanding, no one is looking at them very deeply. From our understanding, there's no one in the world today looking at a manual washing machine specifically for people like Divya. And there are five billion other people that need it. So I am welcoming people into this arena to come and create solutions with us and work collaboratively. At um, EWB Bristol, we've recently sort of concluded our Spotlight Lecture Series on um, world health. And a, a theme that came up time and time again was the fact that medical systems were, again, designed for the first world where they could have such and such things and parts that could be replaced easily um, that were, well, only used by one manufacturer. And there was no interoperability between them. In fact, 97.5% of uh, medical machines donated to the developing world ended up being unusable within five years. So a project we are looking at for 2021 is a design-a-thon, but you know, it might be something that you could, you could help us with or provide a little bit of guidance is, um, is looking to design more open source and fixable um, by people wherever these things are being used, but medical devices to um, increase outcomes for patients in the developing world. That sounds like a really cool project, Gabriel, and I'd love to support in any way I can. It's really pleasing to know that, that you guys are looking at some of these solutions. It's really reassuring, really. Because it's easy to, to get frustrated, but what are you going to do with that frustration? You need to come up with solutions. Yeah, get angry, get frustrated, but do something about it, rather than just tap your keyboard and send out a tweet. I think we could all agree on that. Uh, right, should we go on to quickfire questions then, on there? Yeah, I just wanted to say something about women and female empowerment and stuff like that. So my mum was born in poverty. She started work at the age of 12 and she had seven siblings and she started tutoring English at the age of 12. She paid for all of her brothers and sisters' education and then her 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 brother died of cancer at age 16. She had to pay for his medical expenses as well. She came over to the UK with £5 in her pocket, took up a secretarial role, even though she was she had three degrees. In a, She's an economist, a master's graduate. She worked, worked, worked. Now she's in the government. She's 69 years old. Legally could have retired at 65. She has not stopped working to this day. Her husband died 25 years ago. And she had to bring up three kids all under the age of 15. The tenacity of women around the world. If you provide solutions to these people who are so affected by unpaid labour, if you give them back five, six hours, seven hours of their time, think of what they could do with it. And I think that's so important to get and understand. And, you know, my mother is like the greatest mentor and inspiration to me and everything that I do and I and I just want people to think about that when they're trying to come up with solutions how to give back time and alleviate those very simple burdens for people who are struggling around the world I was brought up by my mum as well so I really 
and she's an incre- a very hard worker and my ultimate inspiration. So I completely, I completely identify with that. <laughs> she's a superwoman. Yeah, and you're crying there, sir. <laughs> yeah, you were you were making me quite emotional then. I don't know why. It's not your usual podcast. I'm telling you. <laughs> she sounds. I mean, such an amazing woman. Like I was lucky, and I've got both my parents. Uh, you know, have always been really, really inspiring to me. But I think the importance of having like like my mum's such a strong role model for me all my life I mean she hasn't had any money from her parents since she was 16 and you know she failed failed her levels retook got into medical school and just did everything like by just pure grit and I think you know you look at that and you have you just think that's what I want to be you know I want to be that strong yeah that's that's uh, you raise a really interesting point one of the best pieces of advice i can give to anyone graduating right now is to find yourself a mentor find yourself someone that you want to be like in five to ten years time and you know speak to them speak to them weekly catch up with them you know even if it's just a, a chat you know talk to them about your thoughts your feelings um where your ambitions are, what you want to do in the future. I mentor five or six people right now on, on, on things like that. And I think it's really valid. I think, you know, finding yourself when you're just starting out, it's really, you feel lost, man. And, you know, helping people get through those, those first few years of, I wish I had a mentor. I wish I had a mentor. And that leads quite nicely onto our first quick fire question of what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Uh, could you imagine? So I'm 30 now. Could you imagine if I started this 12 years ago? Where would we have been? My 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 advice to my 18-year-old self would be to not be scared of the mistakes that you're going to make, and know that it'll, it'll be okay no matter what. Go to the library and study rather than chasing after girls and failing the first year, because that's what happened to me. That was great. No, I think there's a, there's been some themes as well about uh, you know getting back up and overcoming adversity and uh, it's really refreshing to hear and there's going to be so many more mistakes to come we make mistakes all the time I'm sure I made like 10 today but how are you meant to learn from them you know if you're perfect all the time it's boring moving on to our second quick final question which is really three so uh, what's the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear the following words I've got three word number one is engineer innovation Leadership. Inspiring. Uh, and development. Humanitarianism. And here's our next quickfire question. Question. So uh, if you weren't in the humanitarian sector, what would you be doing? People say that I'm a good public speaker and I should be like a life coach of some sort. <laughs> no, but um, it's taken me so long to realise what I'm good at. I think I, right now I feel like I'm doing exactly what, what I want to do. You know, I'd love to, you know, the reason why I loved doing these podcasts and these talks and speaking to people like you is because if it's just one person that I've changed the mindset of and inspired to make a solution for someone like Divya, then that's a wrap, right? That's all that matters. So yeah, I'd love to do stuff like this. And uh, leading on nicely from that, uh, what has been your favourite forum? So that be a podcast or a news station or radio or whatever to speak on that you've done i spoke to this lady 
called Savi, who's a South Indian lady, and I and I picked up some South Indian, um, well, some Tamil, and and she has this podcast called She Heroes, it's female heroes, and I was the first male to come on this podcast, and she was amazing. She was amazing. We had three meetings before coming on to the podcast and recording. And she documents everything, writes everything. She knew everything before even going into the podcast. So she knew where to ask and things like that. And it's only for like 10 or 15 listeners. But I've done the big stuff, the small stuff. That was a really good experience. And this one has been incredible because the equipment, the, you've been so accommodating. I was 45 minutes late, I think. So yeah, no, it's, I've got so much time for people who volunteer for the engineers without Borders UK, really. It changed my life. That India experience changed my life. Thank you. And um, what was that podcast? Because we can we can link it as well in our description if you like. It's it's called Shearers. I'll send you a link. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having you and speaking to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nav. I've, I've loved it. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Ingenious, please subscribe and share the podcast with friends. We'd also love to hear your feedback. To get in touch or find out more about us and our guests, head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on SoundCloud.